Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the markets team, sort of the John Oates to Sarah's Daryl Hall. It is going to be a, it is. a yeah, weekly my new thing. Gimmick. You're going to keep coming up with sidekicks. All right, let's might, keep we, it going. Let's see how many weeks you can go we with an original We might have to commit to this one. Like, I'll grow a mustache and get a perm. Um... I don't know if people get perms anymore. It, it, back in my day, you know, my classmates in high school spent more on perms than they, they do on their cars these days, I, I think. I, I don't think no too many people perms get perms anymore. nowadays, Mike. At least not All like right. the 80s. At least not like right. the 80s. They'll come <laughs> but back. Anyway. They'll come back. So but this I think like a... perms are essential for podcast hosts. I don't think you can really be uh, a podcast host people trust. I think you're right, Ben. I think you're right. <laughs> and we might as well introduce that voice there. That is our guest for the week. Very happy to have him on the show. He does not have a perm, uh, as far as I can tell from the Zoom video, uh, but his name is Ben Inker. He is the head of asset allocation for GMO, the money management firm in Boston. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. I, I think that means once salons are open in each of our areas, each of us will be going out and getting perms and we'll confirm the next time uh, we're <laughs> all in the same place together. Uh, but Ben, we're so excited to have you on the show. And lately, this past week, stocks have been breaking out. The rally has been broadening out. All of a sudden, we've seen smaller companies, value stocks, firms really that have been hit hardest by the coronavirus. Well, they're all of a sudden leading this charge higher. But you over at GMO, you guys aren't buying it. So we're excited to discuss with you why that is and how you guys are going about changing your asset allocation strategies. Yeah. So, I mean, there's part of what you said that I think makes some sense. Uh, Small cap stocks and value stocks were really uh, left behind uh, in the year up until now. They were underperforming on the way down. They were underperforming on the way up. They deserve to outperform. The thing we find a little bit mystifying is the general upward move for the market. Um, As near as we can see, the Uncertainty about the economy uh, really hasn't gone away, and almost all of that uncertainty is downside uncertainty. Uh, and yet, you know, we're we're sitting here with the S and P five hundred down something like five percent for the year in the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. That just doesn't seem right. You know, Ben, and I, I've read that you've, as Sarah said, you've de-risked the portfolios uh, at your firm. I think. Uh, I read the equity allocation is something like 25% right now. Uh, So what is the rest in right now? I mean, obviously, uh, you know, yields are so low. Money market yields are barely there. Uh, Where do you hide out in this environment? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, maybe that's an explanation for why the market is going up. Maybe people are saying there is no alternative to owning equities. Uh, We think there is a better alternative to owning the market. Um, 
which uh, comes back to uh, the smaller cap stocks and the value stocks uh, that we were talking about earlier. Um, value stocks uh, have had an absolutely horrendous 12 years relative to the market. They came into this year trading at some of the biggest valuation spreads we've ever seen, and then they proceeded to underperform by double digits. Um, so what we think makes more sense than just owning equities is going long a portfolio of value stocks and short the market. And the reason why we like that is, well, if the optimists are right and the economy can make a V-shaped recovery, well, those stocks that have just underperformed the market by double digits deserve to outperform the market quite strongly, so you should still make money. Um, and if the world gets disappointed uh, and we don't make that, uh, that miraculous V-shaped recovery, um, Value has a lot of margin of safety here relative to the market. Uh, we can get some very bad news and they still don't deserve to underperform. And so as investors, we love having a margin of safety. Um, and there's very few assets today which offer a margin of safety. We do think a long short portfolio, long the cheap guys and short the broad market does actually have a margin of safety and deserves to make money in the good times and deserves to probably make money even if things do very badly. If they're really, really horrible, uh, you know, we enter the second Great Depression, um, maybe they're not going to outperform in that environment, but they're going to do an awful lot better than a long equity position. So you just gave us a sense of how you guys are positioning now. You short the broad market, go long the cheap guys. Can you give us a little bit more detail on how you guys are actually going about cutting that equity exposure though? I mean, I get the sense that if you guys are shorting the broad market then, then you have to be pulling out of, out of a lot of large cap names, uh, maybe those mega cap tech names. I mean, how are you going about restructuring these portfolios to get there? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the mega cap tech, um, I do find a little bit mystifying, you know, the Googles and Facebooks of this world will certainly get through this. Um, but if you are an advertising firm and the world is entering a large recession, I don't think that's very good for your ad rates. Um, so I don't really know why these stocks should be going up. But um, I recognize the fact um, that they are much less bothered by a really bad economic circumstance than most companies. Uh, not only do they have very strong competitive positions, they are kind of largely monopolists, but uh, they also have uh, very strong balance sheets. So we don't have to worry about them from that, from that front. The market as a whole uh, has neither of those benefits. Um, but because we didn't come into this owning a lot of US stocks to begin with, um, we didn't want to take the so-called basis risk of owning a bunch of European and Japanese uh, cheap stocks and then shorting the S&P 500. So what we actually did to take about 30 points of net equity exposure uh, off of our portfolios, we shorted um, a lot of uh, IFA uh, stocks, so non-US developed market stocks. Uh, which haven't had quite as strong a rally as the U.S., but are still up probably somewhere in the mid-20s uh, from the lows um, and are no longer really priced uh, to deliver something particularly close to an equity-like return. Uh, so we have 
kind of that value spread trade on in uh, the developed world outside of the U.S. Um, we do have a few U.S. stocks, some cyclicals that we bought in April, uh, a, a few kind of uh, stocks in our special opportunities portfolio, and we chose to hedge those with S&Ps. Um, but mostly it's a non-U.S. equity portfolio. So our shorts are mostly non-U.S. Uh, equities as well. So, Ben, I uh, I certainly share your caution uh, about this market right now. Uh, as Sarah will tell you, I'm a big fan of confirmation bias, so I'm, I'm happy to uh, to hear you uh, speak a lot of the thoughts <laughs> I've been saying, too. Um, but I would say, you know, if I'm going to play devil's advocate here and and lay out the bullish case, it is pretty compelling, simply the, the amount of money being thrown at the problem uh, by the government and the Federal Reserve. I mean, the Fed has basically inoculated the credit markets from the type of real trauma that could really make this a lot worse economically and and market-wise. Um, people on unemployment now are getting, in many cases, being paid more than they were making before they lost their job, at least until that, that federal uh, extra help expires in July. Um, but then unemployment claims being extended. There's a lot of money being thrown at this problem. Um, is it possible that you know it's it's problem solved given all the support being uh, thrown at this? Uh, it's definitely problem helped. Uh, is it possible it's problem solved? I mean, I, you know, nothing is impossible. So maybe it's it's problem solved. You know, the reality with the credit markets is tighter credit spreads are helpful, uh, but at the end of the day, what the credit markets need is corporate cash flow. Uh, and corporate cash flow is tough when revenue is down a ton. Um, and even as the economy opens up, uh, I don't know whether the economists were the ones who coined this, but they talked about the 90% economy, right? We can't get quite all the way back. It will feel better than April did. Um, but until we can really uh, get the pandemic behind us, we can't go all the way back. And the problem with being a 90% economy is the economy was not built to run at 90%. The operational gearing, right, relative to GDP of corporate profits is large. Um, so if the economy is running at 90%, even 95%, the drop-off in earnings should be a multiple of that. Um, but if you look at the earnings forecast, Q4 earnings forecast is down six relative to Q4 2019, which was really one of the best quarters in history. Um, and that strikes us as wildly implausible. Um, the other issue where I think it's hard to fix the entirety of the problem um, is you can throw a lot of money around but it isn't so easy getting it to the right places. Uh, and we've seen that with uh, the PPP program where, you know, the money was going to the wrong businesses, businesses that really were deserving of it, couldn't get banks to answer the phone, they couldn't get the website to work. The money was not flowing and is still not flowing to the small businesses uh, where it, it really needs to be. And frankly, on the unemployment side, the, the sad truth about this country is the state unemployment benefits have been made in many cases intentionally difficult to get 
right? You have to jump through a lot of hoops. You have to fill out a lot of forms. People don't understand how, and not everybody who is eligible, not everybody who should be getting the money is getting the money. Uh, and then the, the, the last piece that I think is worrying, and, and frankly, I worry about this more in the U.S. than I do in the rest of the world. Um, I've, I've been hearing a lot of people talk about the idea of um, resilience in supply chains. And people have learned from this that having a far-flung supply chain is an unacceptable risk and they're going to have to do something about it. Honestly, I don't get that. Uh, you know, just-in-time inventory works 95% of the time. So there's 5% of the time where it doesn't work, and so you can't produce the stuff you want. But, man, the profitability on that 5% had better be awesome to make up for the higher cost of goods sold in order to have that broadly resilient uh, supply chain. On the other hand, the one thing that the U.S. has done uh, over the past 15 to 20 years is we've moved to this just-in-time corporate cash flow management where most of the corporate system has levered themselves up in a way that works if everything is happening smoothly. And suddenly everything is not happening smoothly and the wheels will not come off in the first month or two. But over the course of the next nine months, the next 18 months, we have an awful lot of capital structures that were not designed to handle even a normal recession, let alone a very severe one. So it sounds like you're not a believer in this whole idea of uh, sort of reflation as companies onshore uh, overseas manufacturing again. I mean, in a way, that's that would be, you know, assuming that pandemics or something we're going to have to deal with on a semi-regular basis, you know, kind of fighting the last war rather than preparing for the future, I guess. Yeah, I mean, uh, pandemics are something we will have to deal with periodically. A truly global pandemic, it doesn't matter a ton where your supply chain is, unless we're talking about, you know, medical necessities where, uh, you know, nationalism may become an issue and you really want to be producing your masks and, and your swabs uh, in the country. If everybody is having a problem, it doesn't matter whether you're getting your stuff from Michigan or Wuhan. While the world is a smaller place than it used to be, um, it's not obvious to me that, oh, pandemics are now something we should expect to happen once a decade. And I think that we can all hope that next time we will all be more prepared, considering now that pretty much every country around the globe has been through this. But Mike laid out the bull case for us, and I'm just curious what you think, Ben. I mean, when does that reality actually strike then of the realization of the depth of the recession that we are actually facing. I mean, I've seen this chart floating around this past week of the price liquidity ratio. So you have the market cap of the S&P plotted against M2 money supply and people saying, look, it's below average. There's so much cash flooding the system. There actually is a lot of room potentially for upside in the market. I mean, with that case with that argument out there, when, when does the reality of the depth of the recession actually take over and hit? Honestly, I don't entirely know. You know, the interesting thing about where we are, right, th this is we are beyond the depths of this recession, right? We may get a W, we may get an L, who knows? 
Um, but probably the worst fall was March and April. Um, so it's a weird recession from that standpoint. The funny thing is, if you think about past recessions, most of the time when you are two months into a recession, nobody has any idea the recession has occurred, right? It is only well after the fact that we say, oh, guess what? This recession started in, you know, uh, December 2007. And you didn't know it until September 2008, but the recession was really there. Um, so I think at some level, um, we haven't come to grips with the kind of the depth of the lasting problem here. There's been so much of a fixation on the acute problem um, and much less on the issue that, you know, for all the money that is being thrown around, GDP is down a bunch, right? There is simply a lot less output happening. Um, and again, corporations thrive on output. Uh, the other thing that corporations rather desperately need uh, is enough certainty to cause people to want to make investments. Um, and, you know, maybe I am the, the person here who uh, is just is kind of has, has failed to drink the Kool-Aid that everybody else uh, has. But if I was running a kind of traditional business right now, I would not want to be doing a lot of investing. You know, I might have to invest in some PPE so people can come back to work or something, but I'm not going to build a new factory. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm certainly not going to uh, sign a long-term lease for new office space because suddenly I've realized, well, actually, maybe people can work from home. Maybe that actually is a thing that can happen. Um, so, in, you know, the two biggest pieces of uh, GDP are consumption and uh, corporate investment. Uh, and I don't see how corporate investment gets to normal until corporations are truly seeing, okay, I know what the future looks like and it's good. Um, and frankly, even if currently unemployment benefits are pretty good, uh, I would think precautionary savings should be going up right now. Uh, your certainty about what those benefits are going to be is pretty low. Um, your certainty about your job situation is pretty low. I don't know whether, I mean, one of the things um, that could be going on um, is that this recession, even more than normal recessions, has cost jobs from the lower paid segment of the workforce. Um, and, uh, you know, the rich people can work from home and that's working okay for them as long as they have some child care somehow. Um, and, and so maybe this just doesn't seem so bad if you are, if you're working from home and, uh, you know, you've got some time back on your commute. Um, if you are not sure whether the businesses that you worked for are ever going to come back and where your job is going to be, um, uh, if they don't, um, I'd say even if you're getting a surprisingly good unemployment check, which not everybody is, uh, I'd want to be saving some of that. 
Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it's you make a great point about uh, not having to date this recession. You know, no one's waiting for the NBER to, to come out and officially officially give us the, the start date of this one. Um, but, you know, when I think of the reasons why recessions and bear markets always go hand in hand, uh, obviously, you know, the, their earnings damage is... Uh, causes valuations to be less attractive to investors in the equity market. But I also think part of it might be, you know, stocks for a lot of individuals become sort of a piggy bank uh, where you have to cash out if you had lost your job, uh, you know, maybe cash out some of that retirement money to pay your mortgage, to to pay those tuition bills, whatever it is, you know, and on the institutional side, um, maybe you have hedge funds that, you know, have to de-risk for a variety of reasons, margin calls and that sort of thing. So I, what's weird about this one, and Sarah's written a lot about this, is we keep hearing sort of the opposite, that all of a sudden this retail trader, uh, retail investor is super engaged in this market. Uh, Matt Levine, Sarah, had a funny reference to your one of your stories saying there, there's no other entertainment left. You know, everyone's done Netflix. So people are so bored, they're they're firing up their, their E-Trades and their Schwab accounts. Um I think uh, he calls it BMH, boredom market boredom hypothesis. Market, boredom market <laughs> hypothesis. So, you know, Ben, I wonder if you've given any thoughts to that. Is that sort of, you know, the people that are getting uh, a little extra unemployment insurance uh, cash than they would have made otherwise, everyone who got their stimulus check from the government, is that part of this sort of little sugar high we've seen in this rebound? And and if so, I mean, I... To me, that seems like it has an expiration date on it that is fast approaching. You know, the, the federal unemployment uh, supplement, I think, expires in July. So, um, you know, that seems like a little bit of euphoria that could uh, get sapped out of the market pretty quickly. Yeah, I did. I did uh, read that uh, piece uh, and, and quite enjoyed it. Um, in general, day traders don't have a lot of money and are not putting a lot of money to work. Uh, so I haven't seen the, the hard data on it, um, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if they were driving the performance of some of the particularly volatile stocks, um, but for them to be driving the overall market would be an impressive feat. Um, it takes a lot of money to do that. Uh, and, and frankly, one of the things I'm impressed by in recent years, the only buyer of note of U.S. equities have been U.S. corporations buying back their own stock. Um, and there has got to be an awful lot less of that going on right now. Um, 
So I, I will say I am impressed by the market's ability to go up without its uh, big uh, driver of demand there. Um, but, um, you know, there's the old saying that in the short term, the market is a voting machine. In the long term, it is a weighing machine. Um, and the biggest reason why markets have a strong tendency to get cheap uh, in really bad economic times um, is because of the coincidence, and it's not a coincidence, it's, it's completely causal, but um, corporate cash flow dries up at the same time that people's other sources of income dries up. Uh, and the reason why there needs to be an equity risk premium is not just because equities are volatile, it's the circumstances in which equities are going to give you really bad returns. Um, and uh, I don't see that there's any way to unhook that in the longer term. Um, uh, if stock prices, you know, stay up and, and push higher while corporate cash flow is clearly worse, um, then I guess it could be that uh, people are prepared to own equities at much lower returns than they used to be. Um, and, and maybe that can work and maybe that can be sustainable. Uh, we heard that story in 2000. Um, Part of the pitch for why the stock market made sense was that there shouldn't be an equity risk premium. Um, uh, it always struck me as a very strange thing because at the time, if you asked the people who were buying stocks, what returns were you expecting from stocks? They were expecting extraordinarily high returns. They weren't saying, hey, I think I'm going to get you know, 2% plus inflation, but I'm good with that. Uh, and I haven't heard anybody saying, you know what, I'm buying Google today because I think it's going to give me 2% real. Um, and in this world, I'm fine with 2% real. If we were getting that, um, I would be a little bit less scared for the market uh, than if people are saying, well, look, with the Fed here, the market can't help but go up. And... So all I care about is, is the short term. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. I think uh, scared for the market. We can we can leave it at that. That's your segue? <laughs> I was, That's I was our gonna... segue. We're living in unique times, crazy in, times, in, in the short term, uh, this podcast is your place for thoughtful analysis. 
But Sarah, in the long term, it's really a place just for crazy market stories that, that we've all witnessed. It's true. So uh, I, <laughs> That's what I, people come for. They want their return <laughs> on crazy things. So um, I think we got a call into the What Goes Up hotline uh, from a listener down in your state of sunny Florida. Let's give that a listen. My neck of the woods. Hello, my name is Morgan Hill calling from Boca Raton, Florida. Uh, my message is for What Goes Up, uh, Bloomberg Podcast. What's crazy about this market, what I've noticed here just here on Tuesday, is uh, the change in what's driving market returns, um, you know, through yesterday. Uh, you know, year-to-date, we witnessed technology really uh, providing the uh, buffer for, you know, overall equity returns. And, you know, through Tuesday, real estate and industrials are uh, kind of leading the way, you know, followed by financials and you know communication services so it's quite interesting to see the, the, the change of, of you know the wave but uh i thought that's that's pretty crazy Hope everybody has a great week yeah ben that sounds a little bit like the value rotation you were talking about right uh financials uh industrials at least um i guess you'd throw energy in, into that group as well yeah i would uh and and again that's the economic reflation trade and i don't know whether it's right from a timing perspective, but uh, I mean, there is something weird about a market where tech was leading on the way up, tech leads on the way down, and then tech leads on the way up again. There's, there, <laughs> at some point that has to end. Invincible. Uh, and the groups he was talking about uh, are groups that have been pretty beaten down um, and will recover at some point. Um, whether we have enough data to say, oh, phew, the worst is behind us, uh, let's go off to the races now with the more economically sensitive ones, uh, you, have to be, you have to have a better crystal ball than I to be confident that that's the right thing to do. But a change of leadership in the market, my God, is at least well overdue. Is what we saw this past week, do you think it's... Uh what it might look like for the market on the way up just a bit too soon. I mean, considering how you described how you guys were positioning earlier on in the show, even though you are reducing your net equity exposure. I mean, is this what we should expect, though, once we do get to that point when we're out of the woods? It certainly could be. A lot of it depends on what the world looks like when we finally can see our way through. Um, but ordinarily in you know the recovery from a a bear market and recessionary low uh, it would be the smaller cap stocks uh, and the more economically sensitive uh, companies that would lead the way so that that does make some sense um, it does not necessarily mean the market's right uh, but it would make sense all right Sarah let's see you make sense with some your craziest thing all right, so uh, I have a statistic. We, we talked about the speed a lot of the recovery that we've seen and really just how unbelievable it has been. And this statistic comes from Sundial Capital Research. And this past week, we saw the S&P move not only above 3,000, but also above its 200-day moving average. And what they found was that typically, on average, if you've fallen 20% from a high, the time it takes to get back above that 200 day moving average is typically over 200 days. Well, this time we've done it in 56 days, 56 trading sessions. Um, so that kind of just 
shows you how quick uh, this snapback really, really has been. And then I also have one that's a bit more fun. Uh, the SpaceX launch moved to Saturday, but I think we're all <laughs> sitting back <laughs> waiting with bated breath on, on the launch. And I mean, pretty crazy that we're going to have the first launch with a, an American company off of U.S. soil um, to the International Space Station since uh, 2011. Yeah, that is pretty cool. That is pretty cool, I got to admit. Ben, uh, I don't know if they warned you about our gimmick, but have you seen any crazy uh, stories in the market this week? Nothing, nothing that's specific this week. Um, I mean, the craziest action I think I have seen uh, this year, other than oil going negative, um, uh, is um, <laughs> that's a given. What happened uh, to Wayfair, uh, which is a, a company that uh, there is a, that one of the PMs at my firm uh, has quite liked. Um, and from the middle of January to the middle of March, uh, it went down something like 80%. Uh, and he was scratching his head. He's like, I don't understand why, they're, why it's doing this because these guys should be beneficiaries of stay at home, right? If you can't go to furniture stores, you have to shop for your furniture online. Uh, and Well, they're all, they're all sor sourced out of China though, right? Mainly. Uh, not everything is sourced out of China, and it would have been weird if that had driven them to bankruptcy. Um, but speaking of the speed of recovery, um, from that low in the middle of March uh, of 23 and a half, it then went up to 190 in less than two months. Um, and uh, I, I mean, if that is not a market with some kind of ADHD problem, uh, I, I don't know what is. <laughs> you know, I think it was Wayfair uh, that was advertising to me on Instagram this past week with pictures of saunas and big saunas to have in your homes. And I always think of furniture. And I'm like, what is, is sauna now being classified as stay at home furniture? You can't get out to your sauna. <laughs> I really was uh, intrigued by it. <laughs> well, I'm waiting for our air conditioner to be serviced, so it's kind of like a sauna here in my house. Hopefully, they'll they'll get out here soon. Um, well, that's a good one, Ben. I like that Wayfair uh, stock uh, ADHD. That's a pretty good one, Sarah. I'll, I'll give you mine, but first, Sarah, I gotta say, I reached out to uh, our chief crazy things correspondent, Vildana Hyrick. And I, and because she'd really been slacking on the job, I hadn't heard a single crazy thing from her since the pandemic hit. And her response was, "Oh, that's unfair. I've been feeding Sarah crazy things this whole time, like three yesterday." And I'm like, "What? What?" Mike, you know what it is? She just she trusts huh. me with the content more more than she that's, does with you. But yeah, we've we've been we've that's been holding so out. wrong, so wrong. <laughs> beating you but in honor game. of that in honor of that I, I also have outsourced my crazy thing this week um to a listener in uh buenos aires argentina and yes this is partially just a flex on our part that we have listeners in argentina which i think is, is really cool so a little bit of a flex as the kids say Hope, hopefully i'm using that that right um but i mean you're right, using it right mike uh you know i like to the, the illusion that i'm a young hipster his name is Manuel Godoy Luque. He's a lawyer at Baker McKenzie in Buenos Aires. And he points out in Argentina, rather than worry about the effects of uh, low oil prices on the economy, 
they just pegged the price of oil at, at $45 a barrel. They call it the barrel Criollo, Criollo. I'm not, I, I'm not pronouncing it right, but the barrel Criollo, uh, and the government's basically pegged oil at 45. So if you're a refiner in, uh, a refinery in Argentina, you have to pay 45 bucks a barrel. And the idea is to sort of support, uh, you know, their big, their uh, domestic industry. Well, YPF is the big producer. Um, Ben, I don't know about this though. Um, you support your your upstream oil production, but you look at the Argentine peso, what it's been doing lately, and and you're going to make it basically unaffordable to to fill your tank. I think in Argentina, what what do you make of that move? Uh, unfortunately, that doesn't sound that far out of the norm for Argentina. Um, yeah, good point. <laughs> uh, Argentina has done a lot of things like that over the years, uh, right? They used to have uh, people coming in before the economists were calculating uh, the inflation rate to reprice goods in stores, um, which would then be repriced exactly afterwards. Um, so Argentina, unfortunately, <laughs> doesn't necessarily want to live in the world as it is, uh, but the world that they would like it to be. <laughs> Um, and that may have something to do with why they seem to have now just defaulted for the third time, uh, in the last 20 years. Well, it's, uh, it's certainly interesting, but I, I am highly certain that we won't have $45 pegged oil here in the U S at any time, uh, in our lifetimes, <laughs> likely. <laughs> I'll agree with you on that. Although whoever's thought we'd see negative oil prices. So who knows? That's also true. That's also true. Uh, but with that said, Ben Anker, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We really appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. And you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And don't forget, you can also give us a call at our very own Bloomberg Podcast hotline at 646-324-3490. And we may even play your voicemail on the show. What Goes Up is produced by Jordan Gaspore. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.